For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 13, verse 1 through 49, a pretty big section. There's a lot to read here. But to give you a little bit of background where we're at, a couple weeks ago we learned about Peter, the apostle, and uh, how he went into this uh, uncharted territory where he shared the message of Christ to these Gentile people, these non-Jewish people. And one of the guys who heard his message, Cornelius, actually came to Christ. And so we read in Acts chapter 11 that after that time, the people, the Jews who were scattered throughout modern-day Turkey, that they started sharing the message of Christ And a huge movement actually broke out in the city of Antioch. And so the believers called for this guy Barnabas, who we read about earlier in the book of Acts. And he saw the incredible things that were going on there. And so he went down to Tarsus, picked up the apostle Paul, and brought him back up to Antioch. And so that's where we are in in chapter 13. We read that among the prophets and teachers of the church at Antioch of Syria were Barnabas Simeon, called the black man, Lucius from Cyrene, Manaean, the childhood companion of King Herod Antipas, and Saul. So Luke introduces us to a few people here. First of all, he introduces us to Barnabas. We know that his nickname was the son of encouragement. He was one of the guys who sold off a huge plot of land and gave it to the apostles and essentially gave his life to following Christ. He turns out to be a major player in the book of Acts and shows up with Paul during his first missionary journey that we're going to read about tonight. These other two guys, Simeon, you know, Lucius, and Manaean, we don't know that much about them. Simeon, called the black man, that was his nickname. If you look at other translations, it says Niger was also his, nick, his name. Turns out this guy was an African Jew because... Simeon was a common Jewish name, and so this guy must have converted or he grew up in a Jewish family because there was a large uh, community of Jewish people living in Africa at this time, especially in Alexandria. And then you have Lucius from Cyrene, also from northern Africa, and Manaean, the childhood companion of King Herod Antipas. Remember, we read about King Herod Antipas He shows up, says hello, and uh, quickly says goodbye Uh, in last week's uh, narrative that we read about. God um, took him out. But Manan apparently was a, comes from, you know, some, some wealth probably, and he was rubbing shoulders with some royalty. And so we see that the early church was comprised of many different types of people. They were people who came from the lower class as well as the upper class. And obviously, they came from many different races of people. And then you have Saul, who uh, we know as the Apostle Paul. And we read about him coming to Christ in Acts chapter 9. Well, anyway, one day as these men were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Dedicate Barnabas and Saul for the special work to which I have called them. So after more fasting and prayer, the men laid their hands on them and sent them on their way. 
So these guys were sitting and praying and were told that the Holy Spirit spoke to them. It's not real clear whether or not the Holy Spirit spoke in an audible voice, but it's clear that all of them got a sense that this is what God was calling Paul and Barnabas to do. It says that Luke tells us, dedicate Barnabas and Saul for the special work. <clears throat> I think it's interesting that Luke tells us that God sent both Barnabas and Saul. You know, I used to read the New Testament, especially the book of Acts, and I used to sort of envision Paul just sort of traveling thousands of miles on his own. You know, he's uh, just this weathered, you know, tough dude. You know, somebody who just would get beat up and just would stand back up and, and nothing would stop him. As I read through the book of Acts, it became clear that at each stage, it seemed like Saul had a companion with him whenever he traveled and did ministry, served God. And I think that that gives us sort of a pattern today that God wants us to work in teams, that we, he wants us to work together, that really there's no place for the lone ranger Christian who thinks that they can do it all on their own without anybody else. Also it says, so after fasting and prayer, the men laid hands on them. Now, <clears throat> the New Living Translation, which we're reading, translates this, the men. But the context doesn't really provide us a ton of information because it's in the third person plural. And so it could be that it was, it were, it was these men who laid hands on them, or it could mean that the church, along with these men, were laying hands on the apostles. I tend to think it's the latter because it doesn't really make much sense that these three guys got a leading about the Holy Spirit and then told these other two guys, we're going to send you. It seemed like it was probably the entire community of believers that, in agreement, laid hands on these guys and said, we're going to send you out. And I think that's an interesting thing because when you look at modern uh, missionaries today, typically a person attends a church and they feel a calling from God, and so what do they do? They go and they contact a missions organization or agency, they go through their program, and then go back to their church in order to raise funds. So the church really doesn't have very much influence in sending these people. It's really about the individual or the couple that says, we feel called. Whereas in the early church, they recognize we want to send these guys because we sense that God is calling them to do this work. And so it was the church that was sending these guys out. Also, it says that they laid hands on them and sent them out. And this, this word, sent them, literally means they released them. I think that's significant as well because... Paul and Barnabas didn't leave the church in Antioch in ruins in order to go and pursue something else. They made sure that this group was healthy and that it looked like it was going to make it before they moved on to other things. And again, I think we can build a principle off this that whenever God calls us to go and do something, like a new entrepreneurial ministry, that he often wants us to make sure that we're taking care of things first where we're at, that we're not just abandoning the work, but that 
people feel confident that they can release us from our duties here in order to move on to greater work that maybe God is calling somewhere else. That's the pattern that we see there. Now, I think that this raises some questions because today, when people hear this idea of modern missions, it raises a lot of suspicion, criticism. And maybe it was worse back when I was doing my undergrad at OSU. I remember any time you mentioned the word missionary, people would just, just um, you know, get visibly angry or uncomfortable. And the reason why I think people get upset about this idea of Christians sending missionaries out into the world is because they view it as a form of cultural imperialism. You know, where the Westerner or the white person goes to a foreign culture and under the guise of serving Christ, they go in there and they basically rape the land and take advantage of the people. And we've, we've seen this in history where Europeans have gone to these foreign lands, you know, raising the banner of Christ, but really they had this uh, entrepreneurial desire and really just wanted to make money off of these lands. In many cases, people get angry because they feel like Christianity destroys culture. You know, you think about some of these uh, African countries, And you're like, how did they end up dressing in Western clothing and speaking French or Dutch? You know, these European settlers came in there and essentially decimated these cultures. And so no wonder people are sensitive about this and get angry about the the concept of modern missions. And I have to agree, there have been a lot of mistakes that people have made in the past that I think we have learned from. But some people take it a little bit further than that. People who hold what you might call religious relativism. That's really the concept that, you know, each culture possesses its own set of values and its own religion. And for somebody to come in there and impose their religion upon another culture and their religion really is a a form of violence. I wanted to try to depict this in a kind of a visual way. So, you know, imagine you had a bunch of different cultures, right? They're happy. They're holding hands. Okay? So, here are all these different cultures, and each one of them possesses their own local story, their own version of how the world was created by the gods or whatever worldview they hold to. And so each culture has adopted their own view of the world. It's a grid in which they, they view uh, the world and the spiritual realm. And then at some point, one group, their views evolve and their story no longer looks like a local story, but it becomes the story that then encompasses all other stories that really everybody in the world is subject to. And so then they take their story and then they impose that upon other cultures. And in the process, destroying thousands of years of beautiful culture. And so no wonder they get angry when they feel like, you know, really 
somebody's story or their religious views represents an aspect of their culture. And so for us to go in there and try to dominate or to try to impose our views really is an act of violence. It's destroying something beautiful. Now, when we turn to the biblical account, it looks a little bit different. God views things from a different perspective. You know, from the biblical account, you have different cultures, but you have God, an infinite personal God who arrives on the scene. He's got a rendition of the story that happens to be the right story, the correct story. And he gives that uh, to people via revelation. You know, take, take the case of Paul the Apostle. We read about him in Acts chapter 9. You know, he was walking along the road to Damascus with the intent of killing Christians because he, he felt like they were wrong. And then what happens? Jesus confronts him on the road to Damascus and tells him, you know, why are you persecuting me? And so Paul, his entire worldview gets turned upside down. It's not like he came up with this, you know, story of Christianity. It wasn't his local story that he generated on his own. But the reason that he adopted Christianity as a worldview was because God confronted him with his revelation. It came down to him from God. And so God possesses the story and he gives that, he reveals that to different cultures. And in the case of the Bible, he started with the Jewish people and developed the revelation that, we can, that now really is contained in the Bible and then uh, has called his people to go out to share his love with other people. Now, the implications of this are that the story we're talking about isn't just a story. It's also uh, the means of salvation, according to the Bible. That human beings are headed toward destruction and that God has called each and every one of us as his followers to share his love with people who are headed toward this destination. And so it's very important. Now, you might be sitting here, you may not believe in the Bible, you, you may not even believe in God. And I don't, accept for you, or I, don't, I don't expect for you to accept this. But you can see, though, how if we believe this view of the world, the way things are, that it would make sense for us to do uh, what we do, to share the message of Christ to people. I hope you can see that. Now, even though I, would, I agree with people who are disturbed by the history of missions, there are some areas of disagreement, points of tension that we should look at. First of all, our cultural perspective tints our view of reality. They would say that when you, look at, when you look at the world, you have a cultural lens by which you look at the world. And so really, it's, it's impossible for one culture to claim that they possess the truth, that they have a monopoly on the truth. And so really, it's arrogant for us to claim that we know the truth and that it's our responsible, responsibility to declare that to other people. But... I think also we have to ask ourselves this question. You know, if the religious relativist is correct in his, in his or her assumption, 
Um, and if no one has access to the truth, then how could the religious relativists claim that it's impossible to know the truth? Okay? You know, really, the idea that one shouldn't tell somebody else that they're wrong about their religious view. Let's think about what that implies. That you shouldn't tell somebody that they're wrong about their religious view. But by saying that, aren't you suggesting that they are in the wrong for telling people about their religious view? There's a term that we would use for that, and that's a self-refuting statement. That by suggesting that we can't tell people that they're wrong, it assumes a position that we are above the local story and that we actually see things clearly. So we're doing the very thing that we're claiming people shouldn't be doing. Again, there's another word for that. It's called hypocrisy. Secondly, modern missions has done nothing but harm uh, foreign cultures. You know, they would say that modern missions has just damaged culture. But, you know, I think that when you look at many of the cases where religious relativists have come into a culture and have tried to block people from going into tribal cultures and to share the message of Christ as well as to uh, lift their situation through public health care and ed education, that really they are doing damage themselves. You know, I think we've seen cases like this. I remember I heard a story back when um, we sent church planters to Brazil in the 90s that they decided that they were going to share the message of Christ to people along the Amazon basin. And as they were going through that area, one of the uh, foundations called the National Indian Foundation of Brazil, or FUNAI as it's called, actually blocked our church planters from going into these tribal villages along the Amazon. They even went so far as to publish lies about our church planters saying that they are out there and, and stealing people's money. They actually published their names in the newspaper and telling people to avoid them. It's funny because eventually many of these indigenous leaders from these tribes who then became Christians actually wrote the government to defend our church planters saying these people provide help and access to medicine that our government won't even give us. You know, really, you look at organizations like FUNAI that believe that, you know, we should really just protect tribal culture. To the extent that they will actually block people from coming into these cultures, oftentimes cut off the health care and education that these people desperately want. And, you know, really... It's these people objectifying these tribal cultures, almost as though they're, they're treating them like animals in captivity by trying to build an invisible fence around them so we can, we can show them, look, this is our culture. Even though these, many of these tribal cultures are killing each other 
and practicing superstitious things that lead to many deaths. You know, in other cases, religious relativism actually perpetuates inhumane practices and culture. Yeah. You know, in an attempt to preserve culture, some of these organizations go so far as to blocking people from intervening when there are these inhumane practices going on. You know, for example, you look at some cultures where they practice female circumcision. Or what about, you know, the caste system? Where uh, the caste system perpetuates classism and mistreatment of the poor? You know, what about the Indian practice of suti? Where a woman is tied to the funeral pyre of her dead husband? You know, so, you know, we're not allowed to intervene in those cases? Even though many of the people who are the minority groups of these cultures are crying out for justice. Because the majority culture is imposing that upon them. And so, really, I think that it perpetuates these inhumane practices as well as the selectivity that we see in applying this religious relativism. You know, so when it comes to a rural tribal culture, let's say in Brazil or Africa, you know, organizations like Funai will essentially create a hedge of protection around these cultures, blocking anybody from coming in there and intervening. And yet, you know, when I went to Spain, I was sort of torn because I, there was a, a bullfight that week and my wife and I were like, man, should we go to this? But it's pretty inhumane to watch, you know, the, these, these guys kill this bull for, uh, over the course of hours and torture it. And yet, you know, people in our culture today would have no problem saying, you know, the Spanish are wrong in torturing animals. It's messed up. We should eliminate that. And yet you could argue it's a part of their culture. It's been there for a thousand, you know, a thousand years. Been doing it for a long time. Isn't that an act of violence? Well, I mean, it's different. And so there's a lot of uh, selectivity in this. Also, the modern missionary movement has been one of the most compassionate and generous movements in history. A lot of times, these uh, reports that, you know, Christian missionaries went in there under the guise of Christ in order to really uh, gain some financial opportunity and to use people, a lot of times I think these stories are conflated where you know, it's the colonists along with the missionaries coming into a culture the Christians are trying to help, uh, whereas the colonists are taking advantage of the people and those two get lumped together. At the very least, though, we see today that people have become very sensitive to that and have moved away from anything that even seems like cultural imperialism. In fact, today I think Christian missionaries are gaining a great reputation in the world. A recent article written by this guy named Matthew Paris. He's a British politician and writer. He wrote an article called, As an Atheist, I Truly Believe Africa Needs God. Catchy title. He starts off this way. He says, Now a confirmed atheist, I've become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa, sharply distinct from the work of secular NGOs or non-governmental um, organizations. 
government projects, and international aid efforts. These alone will not do. Education and training alone will not do. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts, and the change is good. Only the severest kind of secularist would see a mission hospital or school and say the world would be better without it. I would allow that if faith was needed to motivate missionaries to help, then fine. But what counted was the help, not the faith. But this doesn't really fit the facts. There's long been a fashion among Western academic sociologists for placing tribal value systems within a ring fence beyond critiques founded in our own culture. Theirs and therefore best for them, authentic and intrinsically equal in worth to ours. I don't follow this. I observe that tribal belief is no more peaceable than ours and that it suppresses individuality. Those who want Africa to walk tall amid 21st century global competition must not kid themselves that providing the material means or even the know-how that accompanies what we call development will make the change. An entire belief system must first be supplanted, and I'm afraid it has to be supplanted by another. Removing Christian evangelism from the African equation may leave the continent at the mercy of a malign fusion of Nike, the witch doctor, the mobile phone, and the machete. I mean, this is coming from a a confirmed atheist. He's saying, you know, it's not just the medical help that these Christians provide. It's not just the development strategy that they bring to a country. It's also their faith that transforms people in this culture. He goes on to talk about how as he encountered these Africans in Malawi that they had a different demeanor. They didn't look down. They seemed confident. They would look you in the eyes and there was a sense of uh, kindness to them that he had never seen before. A warmth. You know, when it comes to Christ and culture, I think we have to understand that Christianity is compatible with all cultures. Christianity doesn't seek to supplant uh, a government. If you read Romans chapter 13, Paul says that we should submit ourselves to the governing authorities. Unlike other world religions that isn't compatible, that aren't compatible with uh, culture, which insists on a theocracy, Christianity can live side by side with other religions and can exist submitting to the government authority. Not to mention, Paul sought to become like the people he was reaching, not to get them to turn into him and to look like him. You know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he says, to the Jew, I become like one under the law. To the Gentile, I act like a Gentile, as one not under the law. I do all things in order to win some. And so Paul wanted to make himself like the people he was reaching. And today, many church planters show cultural sensitivity and seek to become like the people that they reach. They learn the language. They understand the customs. You know, they don't want to stick out like a sore thumb. They want to blend in with culture. They don't want to go in there and take over. And finally, the modern mission movement seeks to empower indigenous leadership and development. That's one of the great features of the modern missionary movement. And I've seen this firsthand. You know, we've been partnering with an organization in Cambodia for nearly 20 years called Fountain of Hope. And I remember meeting the large, uh, charismatic Dutch woman who pioneered this ministry. You know, she's like six foot two. So I'm staring up, you know, up at her. Uh, Just this brilliant, 
driven, gifted woman. And uh, I remember asking her, I said, you know, so what, what do these house churches look like? She said, well, I've never really visited one. I'm like, well, why not? She's like, well, I don't like Westerners going into these groups. I want them to be led by the national workers, the indigenous people. And uh, just recently, within the last few years, uh, some health problems have sent her back to Holland, where she resided before she went to Cambodia. And she left behind this management team of uh, really gifted, powerful Cambodian leaders. And they're running the entire operation, which consists of tens of thousands of people. And that's what we really want to see. We don't want to see the Westerner taking over and running things until they die and then falling apart uh, once they're gone. We want to try to raise up indigenous leaders to carry on the work of Christ and to impact that country for Christ. So how do we determine the truth when there are so many competing claims? You know, that's really one of the major questions you might be asking yourself if you're here and you're new. Because there are so many different world religions that claim to be the truth. Well, if you're curious about that, we offer a book called Discovering God. And um, it was a book that actually influenced me to become a Christian. I was very skeptical, skeptical about Christianity. I had a lot of questions. And after reading this book, I was convinced that God existed and that uh, the Bible came from God. And so you could pick that up. We're going to offer that to you as a free gift if you're new here. Okay, let's press on in our narrative here. We got a lot of verses to read. There in the town of Salamis, they went to the Jewish synagogue and preached the word of God. John Mark went, in, went with them as their assistant. And afterward, they traveled from town to town across the entire island until finally they reached Paphos, where they met a Jewish sorcerer, a false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Cool name. You wouldn't want to name your kid after him after you find out why, or find out uh, the rest of the story here. He had attached himself to the governor, Sergius Paulus, who was an intelligent man. The governor invited Barnabas and Saul to visit him for he wanted to hear the word of God. Now, this is interesting. You get a lot of these, uh, these different names thrown into the narrative of Acts. And um, Sergius Paulus, for the longest time, critics of the Bible claim that Luke, the author of the book of Acts, was mistaken in his history, that it was probably written by one of his disciples hundreds of years later, and that it's just chocked full with all of these historical inaccuracies. Part of the reason why they looked at details like this and said the Bible just doesn't have an accurate view of history is because they couldn't verify it archaeologically. And yet, in the late 1800s, the eminent archaeologist Sir William Ramsey set out to actually disprove and demonstrate that the book of Acts was complete fiction. And it was, it was filled with all of these inaccuracies. Well, in 1887, as Sir William Ramsey was doing an excavation in Cyprus, he uncovered a boundary stone that dates back to the time of Emperor Claudius with the inscription of the name of none other than Sergius Paulus. Here's a picture of the boundary stone. Part of the reason why, you know, they believe that this, this was a uh, historical inaccuracy was because they didn't think that there were governors 
that presided over Cyprus, a small island. And yet here we are with evidence, archaeological evidence, to corroborate what the Bible says. And you see this a lot where, you know, for a long time people just said, well, this is just a, you know, fiction or a historical inaccuracy. And then archaeology will demonstrate time and time again the reliability of the Bible. So yeah, boom, it's awesome. But Elymas the sorcerer, as his name means in Greek, interfered and urged the governor to pay no attention to what Barnabas and Saul said. He was trying to keep the governor from believing. So Saul, also known as Paul, was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he looked the sorcerer in the eye. Now, this detail here is important. Saul, also known as Paul, Saul was Paul's Hebraic name. Okay? Some people say that at some point Saul was renamed Paul, but it's, it's likely that Paul had a Hebraic name and he also had a Greek name. And so uh, don't make the mistake here of confusing Saul in the New Testament from another Saul in the Old Testament. I remember one time after a central teaching like this, some, you know, a dude who uh, was coming around our, our, our church for a while shot his arm up and, you know, he was, he was a little contentious whenever he spoke, and he said, you know, this just really squares with what I see in the Bible, that it's just filled with all these contradictions, because, you know, on the one hand, you hear God talk about how he dismisses Saul and decides to work through other people, but then in other cases, you know, it seems like God is working through Saul in a powerful way. And the teacher was like, dude, there are two Saul's. You're like, oh, <laughs> don't make that mistake. Okay, then he said, you son of the devil, full of every sort of deceit and fraud and enemy of all that's good, will you never stop perverting the true ways of the Lord? Paul never really minced words. He said, watch now, for the Lord has laid his hand of punishment upon you. You'll be struck blind. You will not see the sunlight for some time. And instantly mist and darkness came over the man's eyes. And he began groping around, begging for someone to take him, his hand and lead him. Now, this wasn't permanent blindness. It was a temporary blindness just to get him to shut up. <laughs> when the governor saw what had happened, he became a believer, for he was astonished at the teaching about the Lord. And so, you know, it turns out that this high official in the Roman government decides to turn his life over to Christ. Not bad for uh, Paul's first outing, huh? Well, Paul and his companions left Paphos on a ship to Pamphylia, landing at the port of Perga. Then John Mark left them and returned to Jerusalem, but Paul and Barnabas traveled inland to, the, to Antioch at Pisidia. This guy John Mark shows up later on. It turns out he, le he leaves partway through this missionary journey. This guy actually later becomes the author of the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark. John Mark, as he's known. On the Sabbath, they went to the synagogue for the services. After the usual readings from the book of Moses and the prophets, those in charge of the service sent him a message. Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, come and give it. Most commentators believe that Paul was probably wearing a special robe. Notable rabbis would wear these, these blue tassels to indicate what city they came from. So they probably recognized that Paul was, you know, a noble or, or you know, a uh, recognized rabbi. 
And so they were like, well, he's from out of town. Let's have him speak for a little bit. <clears throat> so Paul stood, lifted his hand to quiet them and started speaking. He said, men of Israel and you God-fearing Gentiles, listen. The God of this nation of Israel chose our ancestors and made them multiply and grow strong during their stay in Egypt. Then with a powerful army, led them out of slavery. He put up with them for 40 years of wandering in the wilderness and then he destroyed seven nations in Canaan and gave their land to Israel as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And then after that, God gave them judges to rule them to the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people begged for a king, and God gave them Saul, son of Kish, a man from the tribe of Benjamin who reigned for 40 years. It's funny that he mentions that he's from the tribe of Benjamin. I think his hearers would have known that, but... Paul, as we find out later in the, in the book of Philippians, was actually from the tribe of Benjamin. So he was probably giving a little shout out. Like, yeah, tribe of Benjamin. But God removed Saul and replaced him with David, a man about whom God said, I found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. And, it's this one, uh, and it is one of King David's descendants, Jesus, who is God's promised savior of Israel. Now, the reason why Paul had to go through this entire explanation was to show that Jesus actually came from the family line of King David. Because if you read the Old Testament, God predicts long ago that he's going to send a Savior through the line of David. Before he came, John the Baptist preached to all the people of Israel that they needed to repent of their sins and turn to God and be baptized. As John was finishing his ministry, he asked, Do you think that I'm the Messiah? No, I'm not. But he is coming soon, and I'm not even worthy to be his slave and untie the sandals of his feet. He alludes to John the Baptist here because at this time, John the Baptist was very popular. People held him in high regard. In fact, the extra-biblical historian, Josephus, from the first century, mentions John the Baptist because he was renowned throughout the region. Brothers, you sons of Abraham and also you God-fearing Gentiles, this message of salvation has been sent to us. The people in Jerusalem and their leaders didn't recognize Jesus as the one the prophets had spoken about. Instead, they condemned him. And in doing this, they actually fulfilled the words of the prophet that are read every Sabbath. They found no legal reason to execute him, but they asked Pilate to have him killed anyway. When they had done all that the prophecies said about him, they took him down from the cross and placed him in a tomb. Now, he mentions those prophecies. You know, uh, I mentioned that the book that we're offering after the teaching uh, has some evidence for Christianity. One of the things that it includes are some prophecies, Old Testament prophecies that outline not only the way that Jesus would come into the world, but also his death and his resurrection. But God raised him from the dead. And over a period of many days, he appeared to those who had gone with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to the people of Israel. Now, really, this is an important detail that God raised him from the dead. Because if God did not raise Jesus from the dead, that would make Jesus a common thief who died on a cross 2,000 years ago. It wouldn't make him the son of God. That's what differentiates Jesus, the Savior, from just a common criminal. But brothers, listen, we're here to proclaim that through this man, Jesus, there is forgiveness for your sins. Everyone who believes in him is declared right with God, something the law of Moses never could do. This really marks the climax 
of Paul's speech to the, to the people there in the synagogue that Jesus came to forgive sins. You know, if you're here tonight and you're new, this really should be the thing that you take home from this teaching, that Jesus forgives sins. That might be the simplest way to put the message of Christianity. Jesus came to forgive sins. The Bible teaches that there is a wedge driven between us and God, and that wedge is our sin, our moral wrongdoing. It separates us from him. But the Bible teaches that because God loves us so much, he sent his own son Jesus to come and die and to forgive us for our sins, raising him from the dead in order to prove that his sacrifice actually counted for us. And he says, everyone who believes in him will be declared right with God. That is, we can actually obtain a right standing with God by simply believing in him. That means placing our trust in him. You know, belief isn't like, oh, you know, I believe, I believe that the Browns are going to win the Super Bowl next year. We know what that means. That's wishful thinking. <laughs> belief, in the biblical sense, means trust. Placing your personal trust in God and what he has done. And he also says that this is something the law of Moses could never do. In other words, you can't earn your way to God by doing good things. Some of us have this belief in our mind that if we just try to be the best person we can be, that God will probably accept us. How do you know that? There's no assurance in that. In fact, the Bible contradicts that and says that if you commit even one act of wrongdoing, that you are rendered guilty before a perfect God. And so no amount of good works we do can ever expunge the guilt that we have. It's only through what Christ has done that we can obtain that. Paul says this in Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. It is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. If you're here tonight and you don't know God in a personal way, you've never turned to him and invited him into your life, God wants you to know that he has given you an incredible gift. But in order to experience the benefits of that gift, you actually have to receive it. He's not going to force you to take it. And the moment you do that, you can experience the salvation that comes through Christ. Well, as Paul and Barnabas left the synagogue that day, the people begged them to speak about these things again the next week. And many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, and the two men urged them to continue to rely on God and his grace. The following week, almost the entire city turned out to hear them preach the word of the Lord. But when some of the Jews saw the crowds, they were jealous so they slandered Paul and argued against whatever they said. And so the Lord's message spread throughout the entire region. This demonstrated that what Paul was doing actually made a huge impact. On the one hand, there were people who were listening to the message of Christ, and we hear that people were coming to Christ throughout the entire region. But also that there were people who were jealous and slandered Paul. And so at each point, Paul and Barnabas saw responsiveness from the people who were ready to know Christ 
But also at each point, they encountered opposition. And so this really shows us that whenever we pursue God and we live radically for them, we should expect not only that God will bless our efforts through leading us to responsive people, but also that we're going to encounter some opposition as well. Yeah, Lord, um, we definitely weren't smart enough to figure this out. Uh, You're the one who revealed this to us. And we're grateful that you would, um, you know, show us the truth. And um, we pray that um, this privilege that we have of knowing your truth would would, uh, drive us to uh, share that love and the truth uh, of what your son has done to people who don't know him. And, um, yeah, I'm just uh, really grateful, too, that, um, I don't know, that you give us this awesome mission to accomplish in our lives. I think um, I see people who uh, toil trying to find real meaning and fulfillment in their lives, something of substance, and, um, you know, you've given that to us. And so we thank you for that. And finally, Lord, I pray for those of us who are just investigating Christianity I pray that, uh, you know, this talk tonight may have uh, broken down some misconceptions they have about you and what we're doing here. Uh, But I pray that they would take further steps by investigating you and uh, checking out the evidence that you provide, um, you know, through that book and uh, the evidence that you provide in your work. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.